0: Hello and welcome to the Daily Lawyer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today is yet another episode in our careers in the law series. And today we are going to be speaking about international arbitration, both commercial and investment arbitration. And for this, I cannot think of a better person to join me than Dr. Kabir Dugal, fast becoming a leading voice in the international arbitration space. Kabir is so accomplished that only his bio can be a separate podcast. But I'll do my best to give you all a quick gist. Kabir has a law degree from not one, not two, but four different countries and at all of their elite institutions at that. He received his LLB degree from GLC Government Law College, Mumbai, and then went to Oxford for his BCL and then went to NYU in New York City for his LLM as a Hauser Global Scholar. After this, he went to Leiden University in the Netherlands and he also has an SJD degree from Harvard Law School. Kabir is currently based in New York City and is a professor in both Columbia and Fordham Law Schools, teaching the subjects of investment arbitration and transnational litigation and arbitrations, respectively. He's also an attorney with a leading law firm in the US, Arnold & Porter, serves as a managing editor of the American Review of International Arbitration, is a co-chair of Real, a platform to promote uh, racial equality for arbitration lawyers, and if all this is not enough, amongst all this, he still finds the time to pursue and love yoga. I don't know how he does all this, but we're going to know in the conversation, clearly Kabir is someone who has a ton of experience in the arbitration world. And I cannot be more grateful that he so generously agreed um, to come on the podcast and share his time, his experiences, his learnings, his tips for all of us on this podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. If you did, don't forget to write us a review on our Apple podcasts. It really helps the channel grow and reach a larger audience. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much again, Kabir, for taking time out and being here on a Saturday morning for you, Saturday evening for me, kid free time for me. So I'm happy. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, like I was mentioning in the bio, your resume is so big that the entire, it can be a separate podcast. uh, But and I tried my best to make it short in like five lines or six lines uh, or as, as short as I actually could. But uh, can you talk, like take us back to why you did law, why you got into the law field like as a law student and then your journey from there to here.
1: Thank you, Jenna. Delighted to be here. Delighted to see you after so many years, uh, you know kind of a deja vu feeling because you were a student in my first year of teaching. You know, so I really do, it really does take me back in time. Uh, How did I get into law? Jenna, unlike a lot of people, my entry into law was sort of a later decision that I made. You know, when I had uh, finished high school, you know, the awareness of different fields of education wasn't particularly rampant. And I, the only thing I knew about myself and what everybody knew around me is even though I come from a family of engineers, I'm horrible in math. So science was out of question, <laughs> and so they were like, "Let's do commerce. You do accounting. You know, become an chartered accountant." There was no attempt made to figure out interest, to figure out passion, to figure out matching your skill set with with your abilities, and you know the quest for happiness. None of that happened. I entered in, did my bachelor's in commerce, and. Around my second second year, you know, so third year you graduate, I start having this thing that, you know, I hate accounting. If this is going to be my life, I'm going to be miserable. Now, I was a pretty good student. you know you can figure out how exams work and game the system. But at that stage, the quest of what makes me happy and what should make me happy really hit me in a big way. And that's when I did an assessment about what are my skill sets. And you know, I'm an extroverted person. I like to talk, I like writing. And for the first time, the realization hit me that maybe there is this field of law that may be a good field for me. Now, Jana, I'm also from the generation and probably the last generation where law in India was a pretty frowned upon field, right? If you were smart, you did medicine or engineering, right? If you couldn't do those, you became a chartered accountant. And if you couldn't figure out anything else to do, you did law. That was kind of the conventional wisdom. Uh, Parents were very supportive, but I did get a lot of broader relatives really telling me, are you sure this is the right thing for you? Like, really think about your choice. Somebody also told me, do advertising. Um, But I really decided to stick with law, and I think it was probably the best decision I made. Now, there are two things that I would just like to emphasize, because I think this is consistent with your podcast in terms of message, right? try to identify areas that make you happy, that are your natural strengths, that are your natural inclinations, because what you're going to eventually land up doing in terms of a job is going to become monotonous, it's going to become a routine. It's better to do something that you're not going to hate on a sustained basis, rather than doing something that's just a job and you're doing it and miserable. Uh, And, you know, while the legal profession can be soul-crushing at times, if you like what you're doing, it's going to be a lot less painful. I'll stop here and pass this mic back to you, Jenna.
0: You know, Kabir, when you were saying about, uh, there there have been only two kinds of answers to this question so far on the podcast. Now, majority of the answers were, I came into law by the process of elimination and process of elimination, number one, I'm not good at math. You know, that is like, including me, I also am not good at math. So engineering gone, like exactly like you said. So most of them have stumbled upon law because they're not good at math. The second type of answer is I always wanted to do law because I saw this, I saw that, whatever. So I did or you know, so, so there is a reason or, or a movie or something that they saw. You are the first answer, which is combined both. As in I stumbled up, I did not, uh, you know, I came to law by the process of elimination in in the beginning, but or rather I didn't do engineering because I was not good at math. And then I actually did an assessment to see, yes, is this correct or is this not correct? uh, Or is this not consistent with my skill set? So that's actually amazing. And you are the first, you hold the distinction of being the first person who has managed this bridge. So congratulations, but uh, very nice. And uh, you know, just to take your story a little forward, because not just uh, you came into law and then you uh, you you did uh, law from GLC, uh, but then why did you think of going to the UK? Then why do you think of going to the Netherlands? Then why did you think of going to the U, uh, to the US? Like why did you why do you think of going to all of these places to continue your education in law?
1: Uh, great question, Jenna. You know, look, I had a fantastic time at GLC. I really did enjoy it. I did the three-year program which I think is a dying breed in India, although I did think I had a very great time at the course. uh, GLC offers you many wonderful opportunities. I did feel, though, when when I graduated, that I should probably build my knowledge base a little more. You know, I think within GLC in particular, right, there's often a greater emphasis on work experience and on extracurriculars. You know, our academics are often seen as a sideshow, right? Uh, I remember in some of the classes in the third year on occasions in classes that would otherwise have capacities of over hundred students, there would be like five, six. It didn't help that the classes also were at six and for me from Lokanwala to get to Churchgate meant to get up like at 4.30 in the morning. But putting that aside, you know, I felt there was a need for academic, further academic exploration. And I think, again, I think this is generational, you know, the UK was seen as a more natural fit at that stage. I think today you would probably say the US, or even in your case, Jenna. you know, I think you picked the US and probably you see a greater nexus and I think culturally, we are actually more similar to the US than the UK. Uh, But I did the UK, it was a great experience. Uh, While I was approaching graduation there, I wanted to do higher studies. And the two choices I had is, let me do either a DFIL at Oxford, right? Since you're at the university, you can proceed there. But again, this was this quest to keep evaluating. And I really felt I would fit in much better in the US society. And so I applied parallelly to the US. Uh, and both worked out. And this is the dilemma we often face what do you do? And everyone seemed to advise me, you know, like if you're doing another master's, you are laterally, and you should try to go up in life. So I took an unpopular decision at that stage that, no, I'm going to do a second master's in the U.S. Um, And Jenna, this is one of those things, you know, sometimes we have to trust our instincts. You know, you can get advice, but you should do what makes sense for you. I do think that single decision of coming to the U.S. has been probably the single best decision of my life. The LLM was a fantastically enjoyable experience just learned a lot, met amazing people, got amazing mentors, got to got to stay in New York City. So it was a fantastic year. And it sort of changed my trajectory of my career, right? My life is an international life, but I am now based in the U.S., right? A proud Desi, but still based in the U.S. Uh, so I'm very, very happy with that decision. And I think, you know, the answer may depend on different people's circumstances, but this made sense for me, and I'm happy with how it's turned out.
0: It has turned out beautifully, and uh, I I have so many more questions on your um, on your generally your education, how you chose the universities and things like that. But we'll we'll keep that aside. Um, you know, I know you are uh, an international arbitration practitioner in commercial and investment arbitration, and. Honestly, when I came to the US, I did not even know about investment arbitration. I, I, I took the course that you were teaching uh, <laughs> on investment arbitration, yeah. along with Professor Ian to learn, but for someone who knows nothing about arbitration, except the spelling, how will you explain what is international uh, commercial arbitration or generally, what is international arbitration? And then maybe you can talk about commercial investment a little later.
1: Okay, awesome. Uh, so- Arbitration is a form of dispute resolution. And the speciality of arbitration at large is, parties decide, so this is where contractual law comes into play, but parties are agreeing that if we have a dispute either now, but more likely in the future, instead of going to domestic courts, let's go to these wise people who can hear our dispute and give us a binding judgment, right? That's why we call it alternative dispute resolution. It's an alternate to the court system. Uh, It is a very popular mechanism for resolving disputes. And as a general matter, if you are in international trade or an international business, Jenna, something I think you have a lot of experience in. This is likely going to be the method you are going to select, because, you know, if you're an Indian party doing business with the US, the the, the litigation choice would be either to go to Indian courts or to go to American courts, and the other party is not going to find this option promising, right? So this takes away the home court advantage and really allows you to go before this neutral panel to hear your dispute and give you a binding judgment. Uh, I will just make a small point here, like any method of resolving disputes, arbitration has a lot of advantages, but there are a lot of limitations too, and we shouldn't brush over the limitations, you know, one area that stands out pretty, pretty significantly is the lack of diversity, you know, most of these arbitrators tend to be the proverbial male pale and stale. Uh, there are other issues too, but but you know, these are all quests that we must work towards improving. It is going to be here by necessity, this method of dispute resolution, but that's arbitration at a high level. I'll pause here, and if you want to ask me about commercial investor yes. states, I'll leave it to you.
0: Yes, but before I ask you that, uh, when it comes to diversity, I think you are actually, I saw that you have pledged, uh, or rather, you are actively working towards increasing diversity. And I've seen that you've also spoken about it a little bit on LinkedIn and stuff, that you know, you're know you really committed to uh, increasing diversity, not just to give more representation, but also uh, it helps the arbitrator understand the perspective and the culture that each of these parties are coming from. And that may play a part in uh, the, the order uh, that they give, you know, or, or the kind of relief that they provide to either party. So
1: I fully agree with you Chandra. Yeah. that is, that is exactly so I have seen
0: uh, <laughs> your I have also seen your pledge you know like you pledge to uh, give your support to increase diversity so that's really great. But for commercial and investment arbitration if you can just give an idea of you know everyone knows international arbitration yes, but then this there is this bifurcation of commercial investments. Do you want to just yeah. talk about that?
1: Sure So commercial arbitration is a broad, Term. And this is really agreeing to resolve your disputes, commercial disputes before a panel of arbitrators, right? So you contractually put this in either your contract or in an addendum, and your dispute goes to arbitration, right? So this is international business, this is international trade. The mechanism is often international arbitration. Over the past 20 years or so, An unknown form of arbitration has entered the spotlight and that's investment arbitration. Now it's existed for about a hundred years. It really became popular after World War II. The, The idea became popular that states got together often entered into these treaties and in these treaties, you guarantee foreign investors from the other country protections And you put in this clause that says, if there is a breach of any of these promises, you can take us to arbitration. Now, it's significant in the sense you're allowing a country, a sovereign, to be accountable to three people often that can tell you you have violated your obligations and you have to pay millions or billions of dollars. So that is a pretty unique idea. It became prevalent in the early 2000s with Argentina, you know, when the economy collapsed, Argentina faced a flurry of cases, and that really gave some amount of prominence to this area. Of late, it has been very significant in the Indian context. We've seen a couple of clusters of cases coming out, and we have seen the government trying to assess how to fix the system, right? India, unlike the US, went on a treaty signing spree when the economy opened up. So India, like, I I believe this was sort of misplaced notions, the more treaties we have means the more friends we have. So India signed about 80, 85 treaties. Uh, It's now terminated a lot of these in light of a new, They came up with a new model and they're using the new model to renegotiate treaties. Uh, Does the system need to be fixed? Yes. Are there a lot of issues? Yes. Does the Indian model address a lot of the criticisms? I put a little bit of a question mark. It's not exactly clear what India was thinking with its remodeled approach, but we'll put that aside for the time being.
0: But you know, this is a really good answer that you gave me and took me back to uh, the class that you took. I mean, the, the, because for everybody who is listening, uh, I have not met one more human being who knows every or rather at the time, at least, I, I do not even know at the time there was like 35 decided investment arbitration cases or whatever. It was a very small number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you knew every single case, like every single case. Okay. I remember when, uh, Professor Ian Lard actually asking, Kabir, what?" Like rrr, 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 literally rattling the stats out. This what this happened. And I was thinking, good Lord, like I, this is the kind of mastery I want over the subject, but also Uh, that class also taught me that investment arbitration is not for me. So I was, I was happy to, I mean, it was a, it was a very good class, but also I learned that's not for me because it's a very niche field uh, and a very committed, like you have to be very committed. You have to have very good mastery over your uh, private international law, public international law and all of that. And that's probably, it was, it was not my forte, but I was amazed at your mastery over that. And um, this actually, I'm going to use this as a segue into asking you, because I have seen you and I saw and I was amazed at the at the, at the kind of hold that you had over the subject. Uh, for anyone, uh, any law student or even a young lawyer, a young law, legal practitioner, if he or she wants to get into the field of international arbitration, What would you say to such a person, starting from law school? Like, what kind of subjects? What kind of what do what do you think they need to focus on? Do you think they need to do an LLM or whatever for that?
1: Fantastic question, Jenna. I just begin with something you mentioned. You know, because I think specializations are important, but flexibility is equally important. You know, so you should trust your gut. But you should also explore and see whether it makes sense for you or doesn't. You know, I, I we spoke about this a little earlier. You know, you sometimes see very young people coming and telling you, I want to do this in this, in this. And you look at that and say, Wow, amazing that you have figured this out, but but it's too early for you to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So I will just urge people always, you know, follow your passion but keep an open mind and explore because there may be areas of law. I I didn't train to be an arbitration lawyer. I wanted to be a human rights public international lawyer. Arbitration was something I explored and enjoyed it. But this is where I would just urge a little bit of flexibility. Having said that, if you are interested in disputes, you are likely going to get to study arbitration in India at a more advanced stage in your academic life. It's often going to be like a fourth or a fifth year elective. But if you like it, you may want to see if you can participate in moots. The VIS moot, which is this annual event that happens in Vienna and in Hong Kong. It's the biggest moot overall. And somebody told me it's the second biggest event in Vienna. So arbitration actually has that, that, that significant role to play. But try to participate in moods. A lot of the arbitration institutions have young bodies. So the International Chamber of Commerce ICC has a young ICC. The London Code of Arbitration has a young. For us, curse, there is the Mumbai Center for International Arbitration and they have a young chapter. Most of these young chapters are free. So sign up and avoid the temptation for being a docile, dormant member. Right? People sign up because it's free and then do nothing with it, then don't sign up. Right? If you're going to sign up, attend the events, participate. If your law school has a disputes society, try to get active with it. Uh, explore your areas and see whether it is what you want it to be. You are not doing it because you think it's going to be fun. You think it's going to be, we can romanticize things in our mind, see whether what your romantic notions are is what the practice actually entails. Uh, You know, I'll just make a final point and give it back to you, Jenna. You know, a lot of people who want to do arbitration say they hate writing and hate speaking. Now that isn't Awful skill set to have if you want to do arbitration. Arbitration is litigation adjacent, right? Your skill sets is going to be writing and speaking. If that is not your skill set, you may want to think about corporate work. You may want to think about areas that you can use the mind and the brain a lot more than you would be in areas that are advocacy oriented. So I just you know you need to find your passion. You need to see if your passion makes sense, and that you have the skills necessary to do well in it.
0: Never uh, heard of anyone saying that I want to do arbitration, but I don't l- like to speak and I don't like to write. Like it just seems you uh, know it's like an oxymoron, you know. Yeah, Unless you exactly. think arbitration is uh, it has nothing to do with litigation and it's not even dispute resolution because you can't resolve disputes. If you don't want to speak to each other uh, I, I did not ask you this question earlier but because you were speaking uh, i thought i want to ask you this uh, you also do mediation so um, and at least in glc and i'm seeing mediation a lot in india also you know we we are actually building uh, a lot of mediators we're trying to build skill Uh, as mediation we're having mediation like you know how you have arbitration centers actually having mediation centers so uh, a lot of the young law students today and uh, GLC also has some ADR cell and things like that they do they do all of these things so um, a lot of the young lawyers today at least whom I meet um, they want to explore mediation so how do how what do you think you're going to tell them in terms of Uh, developing their mindset or uh, during law school, what can they do? And how different is mediation from arbitration, you know, in terms of practice?
1: Uh, So great question. Jenna, with your permission, I will divide them. What do you do in law school and, you know, how is mediation different from arbitration? Mediation is probably an area of dispute resolution that has not received its due. We should be doing a lot more mediation than we are. So I'm very happy because I think even in the US, right, which has a rich ADR tradition, mediation is often the stepchild. We need to do a lot better, even here. I'm happy, you know, the the the, the examples you are giving are great. I'm glad India is also looking at it because if you want to have ongoing relationships, business relationships. Arbitration is like litigation, is like war. I am against you, one party is going to win, the other party is going to lose. Mediation as a dispute resolution mechanism is, we have a dispute, let's try to find a mechanism for us to resolve it. And it doesn't always have to be one party wins, one party loses. Let's try to restructure a deal if the deal doesn't make sense. Right? We're going to have a wise mediator hear the dispute and try to come up with solutions, that doesn't make it adversarial. So it's amazing, right? If you want to keep your relationship, if you want to keep the business going. Uh, generally, law schools and law societies tend to put ADR within one rubric, right? And so arbitration and mediation fall within the same ADR society. My own personal suggestion is that arbitration and mediation are related siblings, but very different. So it would be good to have an arbitration co-chair and a mediation co-chair. And while you do related activities, you don't try to lump them together, you know, because while they are related, the skills are not necessarily the same. You need to be able to have greater business knowledge in mediation. You need to be able to much greater empathetic skills, much better hearing skills than you would need an arbitration, right? An arbitration, it's cross-examination. An arbitration, it's opening statements. So, I, I mean, I would just... ADR society should keep both arbitration and mediation as focuses and make sure that you're doing justice to both arbitration, otherwise will by default dominate the discourse.
0: And also um, not, you know, even your persuasive skills uh, come into play when it comes in mediation, because you're actually actively trying to persuade two very upset parties to to, to just compromise a little bit, you know, neither of them want to compromise. So, fully
1: agree. you're yeah. the other side. What yeah. would you do if you were in that yeah. position? Yeah. It is sort of having, like, you know, a parent Correct. trying to counsel kids and really. Yeah, yeah know,
0: absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, this is also where, probably, when we spoke, you spoke about diversity. I, How does you, in arbitration, you said you have know, stale, uh, pale, male, and stale, which I've heard yeah. before. I just heard it two days ago and I didn't know it's like a line. I, I, just, I But it's, it's pretty cool um, in arbitration. But how is it in mediation? Do you see, you know, th- things changing there, here, everywhere?
1: Look, we, you know, Jenna, to be very honest, the reality of the day is these fields have been dominated by men. So, you know, our profession is a reflection of society and of life. And so all the biases we see in society and in life are present in our view. Could we see more better roles for women as mediators? Just going by general gender roles and gender stereotypes, you would think that women would more naturally make themselves as mediators. Are we yet there? I think the answer is no. I don't think we are there. Is there at least some acknowledgement and awareness? I think the answer is yes. Uh, We are going to have to give it time and we're going to have to fight because time itself doesn't solve problems. You're going to have to actively try to change things
0: but are you well, seeing the trend are you seeing a trend towards because uh, at least here uh, you know i'm seeing so many lady lawyers not just lady I have a lot of lawyers but certainly lady lawyers who are actively taking mediation courses and uh, and getting certified as mediators and i think it's it's good because you they not just not just because they are women but you know all everybody brings something to the table uh, so do you see the trend at least globally not just in the us but across all the jurisdictions that you. Uh,
1: Jenna, you know, I, I, I think the answer in that question is it's too early to see a trend yet. We are seeing greater awareness and greater focus. My own experience about the law at large is, you know, we're all very good. If you look at law schools in the US, women exceed men. If we look at law school performance, there's no gender difference, right? So, so th- this is not a gender issue. If we look at law school entry into law firms, we're seeing parity. Somewhere around the fifth or sixth year, there is the great disappearance that happens. And if we look at the top, it's abysm. Um, and this is about 20 years of data. So the trend is greater awareness we're still not seeing a numerical change, arbitration, mediation, just being a reflection of this broader trend, Uh, which is why I think we all need to do a lot more that we can. You know, as a man, I feel I have a special duty now with some, I don't want to say I have the biggest voice, but I have some amount of voice. I think it's more significant if I speak it now, because it will make at least a small dent, a small effort to the younger generation that is either not male or not diverse that's coming up.
0: Sorry. You know, Kabir, like even this is not part of what I sent you, uh, but uh, I really want to take this conversation forward that you've actually uh, said something so important and and really um, something that's close to my heart because one of the things uh, when you said the great disappearance, because that happens when you have kids, you need to, you you need to do it. Uh, and right. Right. nowadays, I think both men and women uh, they they are pretty good at co-parenting. I, I don't think it was like that when we were growing up. Our, our moms are probably the more uh, involved parent, but nowadays I think both men and women are uh, co-parenting. So when you say that, you know, yeah, we have to step up and. Uh, and be a voice but I think just being a voice is not important not enough so what do you think are some of the things that we can do practically to make the work because our field our profession is a very demanding profession and, uh, and I'll give you an example when I was a legal counsel, this is a, this is something I'll never forget as long as I live uh, I was working with a, with an international companies not all Indians okay so culturally they are very different and to be honest they were, it was much better for me because they were only focused on the work. They had no other, like none of the other, where are you? What time are you coming? Where are you? Where are you working from? Blah, blah, blah. So when my younger daughter was born, I, uh, first we had this, we had a really serious issue that had gone down in our India office and all of the seven global, uh, seven CEOs from various regions across the offices. So different different countries and continents they were all on the call because it was a serious issue and everybody's inputs were needed with the founder chairman of the company and I was supposed to tell them you know give them a presentation of what happened then and literally the call started and my daughter was four months old and she started crying like she was going crazy mm-hmm. and that was the day that my maid didn't come uh, my mm-hmm. husband had to travel out of st- like everything that had to go wrong went wrong and my daughter was she was, she's gone nuts. Like she was yeah. absolutely fine. The call started and she's like screaming. Yeah. And I was literally, I was going to cry. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, Cause yeah. you're yeah. on the call, everyone's waiting. And then the, the uh, chairman, he told me, Jenna, um, I think your daughter needs you. Why don't you take care of her? We can all meet after half an hour. Gentlemen, can you check your calendars? Can you give yeah. us, can we reschedule yeah. for half an hour? So we, res- they, yeah. all of them rescheduled for yeah. half an hour. And I had time to calm her down. I don't even know what had gone yeah, yeah, wrong. And then yeah, yeah. And I, I, was, I was literally crying because Correct. no one has done this for me. But this yeah. is an example of what we can do to, uh, you know, to improve workplace, just the culture. Correct. So Correct. What do you think we can do to help uh, things along?
1: You know, Jenna. look, I feel this is, this is the reality of life that we all need to be very mindful of. Um, We are not in a profession for the most part where lives depend the same way it would say if you are in the medical profession, right? Most of the deadlines are artificial and made up. If we can just change our mindset towards greater accommodations and greater flexibility, we can go a very long way. And Jenna, it's one of those things, you know, we all believe when you're going through it, how you would like greater flexibility, how we would like greater accommodations, except when we come to positions of power, when somehow, I don't know, there is this belief, you know, I sucked it up and I did it, everyone should do it. Whereas, you know, when we get to an ability, a position of power, we have the ability now to say, I suffered. Let me not make people underneath me suffer. Let's have greater accommodation. Like, see, if you are with a young child, that is going to happen. You know, it is possible to get two people on or have more flexible time or have greater consideration. Like Jenna, you made a great point about co-parenting. Now my own view in that regard is we're seeing greater distribution, but it still seems to me certain things are within the women's domain globally. You know, like, like there's still many things that we expect only a woman to do globally. and that disproportionately impacts women and impacts women in the professional setup. You know, we need to have greater mentorship programs. We need to have greater allyship programs. You need to have management involved in some of these discussions. You need to have open forums. You need to have silent forums because very often, you know, they're a shame if you express your idea openly, you feel you're not going to get promoted. You know, you should have, all these are things we need to institute better. And even, you know, just simple things. When you are appointing an arbitrator, are you thinking about gender? Are you thinking about race? Right. Now, if you are in-house counsel, if you are in those positions where you can influence, are you using your power to make a change? We need greater mindfulness, thoughtfulness, and greater You know, we are now in positions where we can try to impact things. Use that power to make a change because the status quo is awful and we need to do better. We really need to do better. I'll I'll give you one example, Jenna, similar. And I'm giving an example from the US about seven or eight years ago, uh, you know, uh, in one of the associates forums, uh, a woman who was a senior associate said she was pregnant. And she said when she was going to have her kid before she went on maternity, she went to all the people she was working with to tell them that she's serious about her profession, that she still loves the law. But that idea that you're going to have a child and you feel it necessary to express that you love the law and that you're not going to half-ass it i just think was a very troubling reality that the the practice requires indirectly i don't think anyone told her you need to do this but if you feel you're not going to have your job that's awful right
0: i mean uh, i can't relate to to her because luckily i haven't faced that but i do feel so sorry for that you know and i and i know it's not an isolated phenomenon or it's not an isolated incident in one particular country like you said it is global Global. you know it's everywhere I think the way and hopefully we are all doing our part and like I was telling you before we started also one of the reasons why I want us to have these conversations in the podcast because we are we are glorifying people you know like with no offense to anyone no offense to any of those great women and men who have done phenomenally well in their lives. But uh, we are glorifying people who have reached the peak of their career. But we do not uh, talk about balance in the sense that we do not talk about the other side of their their personal lives, their kids, whatever, you know. So let's just speak about real people and, and, and more relatable people, you know, and how we all juggle all of these things. So it's true. The other thing that you, I suddenly realized when you told me that when we are appointing an arbitrator, do we think of gender? Do we think of... Uh, I realized that in all the arbitrations that I have done, and I had a, a a vote to cast in when it comes to the arbitrator, especially when I was a count, legal counsel, you know, not one of my arbit- arbitrations, not not one has had a lady lawyer, a, a, a lady judge, not one. Oh, yeah, one of them did. Uh, she was, yeah, that's true. But we settled it, you know, it was just a couple of hearings. It was literally like, What are you guys doing? We're going to settle. Okay, settle. You know, it was like that. It was not a hearing hearing, Um, but oh dear! Can you imagine?
1: So reality again globally. Yes, yes, of course. So
0: anyway, this is for anyone else who's listening, and for me also to remember in future that uh, maybe we should take these things into account. Okay, so one just two more questions to wrap up this segment. Um, For uh, what would you say are the skills that are needed? to succeed in a career in international arbitration?
1: A great question, Jenna. You know, we sort of alluded to this, you know, arbitration is litigation adjacent. So the skills you need to be a successful litigator are very likely the same skill sets you need in international arbitration. You need to be very good at drafting And you need to have the advocacy skills for cross-examination, for oral opening statements. I'd probably put in parentheses also international arbitration is international. So you need to have cultural awareness. You know, you need to make all those judgments. Where are your tribunal members from? Now, they're all from the West, but you know, are they from cultures that are more aggressive? Are they from more deferential cultures? And you need to keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, If I may make one related point here, Jenna. you know, I think skills is something law schools in India don't do enough with. And, you know, to the younger lawyers, law students and to the younger lawyers, you know we are a profession you know you you get better at making the pot by making many bad pots it's the same thing with writing and with speaking you need to keep doing it you need to get the basic rules of the game figure out your own style which is important jana must sound like jana not like kabir kabir must sound like kabir right But once you've figured out your style, you have to keep practicing and developing it and, you know, keep that in the back of your mind, because I think it is something we don't take as seriously as we should. You can figure the law out. The skills requires practice.
0: And what about, um, because my exposure... To international arbitration really came during my time in Columbia. Uh, you know, not just uh, taking the classes, but also I was working with uh, Professor Berman as his yeah, yeah. research research assistant, and then you know part of that Columbia Arbitration Association yeah, yeah, and things yeah. like that. So then it was like, a, oh my goodness! And then one thing that I really uh, that I took away from that experience is that the arbitration world they network really well with each right. other, and they right. are like uh, you know they are they're really well networked. They keep Flying right. here and there, they are constantly right. trying to get into conferences right. and things like that. Right. So, um, would you say that the the you know you sh- the power of networking because people are really shy. I was, I am still, but very very shy. Even though I was in the room with all of those, uh, you know, professor and all of those names that you see <laughs> doing that uh, draft for the unctral Model Rules, I could not get a word out. I was sitting like one dumb, like as if I'm mute. <laughs> You know, so what, what would you say about networking? Uh,
1: j- Jenna, look, arbitration is a club, for better or worse, you know. So everybody knows everybody. It is true. L- but let me just make a j- broader point. The legal community is a community. It is a fraternal organization. It is important to know people. So in arbitration, probably it is more accentuated, but this is a problem, or I shouldn't say problem, this is an issue for the legal community at large. Uh, Networking again is a skill. Uh, You know, if you're not naturally, if you're introverted or ambiverted, it's not going to come naturally to you. This is where you want to develop faking skills and you want to develop the two or three points that you know how to make a conversation. But it is very important to network and network right. right? The idea is not to have 50,000 connections on LinkedIn, but to have connections that if you have a real issue, if you ask somebody, they're ready to hear you and assist you. So, so yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was
0: that was useful. Uh, that's a useful tip. So, you know, so many, uh, actually I should apologize to you because I, I sent you one list of questions, but then I'm I'm asking you so many things which are unrelated because every time you say something, it's like, I feel like asking you something about it. But uh, the last question to wrap up sort of this segment of is, uh, because you, you've kind of answered a lot of the other questions in your other answers. So I'm not specifically asking you those. But uh, because you have... Studied and you've been exposed to a lot of different jurisdictions, and of course, and India. What do you see from a comparative perspective? Because you are in a position to give a comparative perspective. What do you think are, are the advantages of the legal system, Indian legal system, some of the fallouts of the Indian legal system? And uh, how do you think that all of us today, like you, I and all of the incoming lawyers? Um, how do you think we can contribute meaningfully to make it better? Because honestly, I yeah. think somewhere it, it, is, it, it is dangerously close to being broken, our justice yeah. system and everything. So how do you think yeah. we can all contribute uh, to making it slightly better?
1: Fantastic questions there. Uh, look, I think, you know, I'll give the example of GLC probably as a representation. It's the example both of us probably are most familiar with. You know, a lot of the law students come out already with a lot of work experience. There's proximity to the Bombay High Court. You get a lot of guest lectures, there's a very active student council and a lot of organizations. Mooting is taken much more seriously in India than it is, I think, in the US period. Right? So there's all those advantages that we shouldn't undermine. You know, there is a lot of you're thinking of the profession, I think, holistically. What I think is lacking is probably a focus on good academic knowledge and on building skills in a targeted manner, right? I mean, I think classes were quite optional and I don't think the school intends them to be optional, but there was very slim attendance. And I feel sometimes you know, you people would study three weeks before the exam, picking up some of these guides. And, uh, you know, you mean you. I, I believe you can get legal knowledge and, you know, it is good to use those years really to challenge your mind intellectually. And I would urge that as one thing. And just related, you know, building business skills if you want to go into corporate law more generally, I think, having business skills, having writing skills. Almost all our expectations in our mind of what a lawyer should do to be a good writer, are contrary to what is considered to be good legal writing, you know, short sentences, no Latin, no complicated clauses, not too many commas. Those are things we have to learn. Uh, you know, how to do a cross-examination, how to ask closed questions, how, you know, all that requires training. And I think that's an area we should focus on better, you know, which I think the U.S., as an example, does a better job at, you know. Uh, The other question, that's a much harder one, Jenna. But my own view there is whatever areas you think are significant, you should try to get stakeholders committed to that cause. Like I'm very committed to diversity right now. I think, you know, I'm at that stage where I think I can at least nominally make a contribution in that area, get like-minded people, get senior people, and together try to make piecemeal areas that you can make a difference. Like for us in arbitration, as you said, it's a club. One area we realized is the club requires fees. And a lot of people, especially from the developing world, or if you're not socioeconomically wealthy, don't have the avenue to get into. So we're giving scholarships. You know, you can attend events for free. You can't become part of a club if you don't show up, right? You have to show up. So that's some. It's a very small effort towards greater representation and socioeconomic representation. But we believe it is making a nominal change in the life of a person who couldn't go and can now go. So that's what I would do generally, figure out one area, get a like-minded set of people and try to see what area. You know, if you know the law minister, it's amazing if you can talk to them and try to convince them of the merits. That's often going to be difficult and the law minister itself may not have the ability to make the change. But progressive steps overall, I think, is fighting the bigger issue that you see in front of you
0: but good answer honestly like it's uh, especially the point of getting somebody to take ownership of one issue you know like one not somebody a group of people and I think we do have I think if we look within our profession I think we will find enough and more people who are committed to do something it's just that we need to all of us need to channelize our energies and our efforts in one direction and that's what we don't have maybe you know we are we all are little right. disparate. We are like satellites uh, roaming yeah. around the earth. We all want the same thing, but we are still satellites. You know, it's like that. Yeah. And this is
1: where the power, collective power, is. Yes, necessary.
0: yes. I think we can we can do that. I I hope we can do that. Yeah. I mean, I hope we can use our time and effort in the next twenty years to really bring good change. Who knows? Maybe it'll happen yeah. through these
1: yeah.
0: platforms, these conversations.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: So. Exactly. We wrap up the like the legal part of the of the podcast, and then this the the second half is just to know you better uh, as a person and to learn from you because I've all like I'm surprised at how much I learn in the last part. You know, this five four three two one. So the last segment is called five four three yeah. two one. I ask you five of something, four of something, three of something, and all that. And uh, almost every podcast, somebody tells me something completely new. Like I have not even thought of it like that. So. Uh, this is my favorite part to do. So yeah, yeah, we're starting yeah. with five productivity. And you can definitely tell me this because you to do, I don't know, a <laughs> thousand things, <laughs> <laughs> you do yoga also. Where you get the time to do everything, I don't know. So five productivity tips. Uh, you can tell me about apps or whatever it is that you use to, to just make yourself more productive.
1: Oh, fantastic. The first productivity tip you actually alluded to it. Yoga. Yoga, mindfulness, breathing. It truly, really, I did yoga when I was 19, 20, and then I stopped and I've gotten back to it now, 18 years later, and it has changed my life. So i really think it makes me better. I feel the body is better. So that's one thing really everyone should do. Have a calendar and keep your calendar organized. Now you can use any calendar you want to keep a calendar. Another, this is a life productivity tip. Set long-term goals and short-term goals. And I think it's very important to have both and keep looking at them because at different stages in your life, you want to change them. Another productivity tip, be smart about multitasking. When you're doing silly things and we have a lot of things you have to do, see if you can do two things, you know, at the same time. Uh, Be smart about that. And the final productivity tip is see when you are most productive. And this will vary based on who you are. Are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? Because at the time you are most productive, do your most difficult tasks. Now it will vary for person. Now, I am starting this other thing, You know, try not to actively look at your emails throughout the day, try to get back to it at regular intervals. Uh, but these have been things that have worked out for me well cannot emphasize the yoga enough
0: wow i should try i was doing yoga and then i stopped because my kids started school really? and i was so happy that they are out of it's looking very good no no need for yoga okay, so, but maybe i should i should try that in terms of emails i actually agree with you because what i did uh, very recently maybe a month ago is i put off notifications on my phone like 100% not- I put off notifications and I just kept an alarm on my phone so at 11 o'clock it rings so I have to check yeah. my email at- so obviously when you yeah. wake up I mean you- when you start your work day you're looking at emails everybody does that it's almost yeah. natural uh, but then at 11 o'clock my alarm rings to check my email and then at 3 o'clock it rings I actually don't check emails between 11 and 3 and I found that if it's urgent enough people are calling you they may call you a little frantically and say that yeah. i sent it to you one hour ago what are yeah. you doing you know but at least they call you and it yeah. helps you know it, i think protects your sanity a little bit so but really but really good let me try uh, try the yoga i'd I I, I get I, 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 you want <laughs> tell you okay this is helping me or not but uh, so now four books uh, that you would recommend anyone read
1: I, I have re- started rereading the Mahabharata right now, and I'm actually enjoying it immensely. I think at different stages in my life, just these epics have given me different insights. And the big insight for me right now in the Mahabharata just is there's no good character and bad character. Actually, they're all complicated characters, which I think makes that book so much more interesting when you look at it that way. Uh, the second U.S. president, John Adams, there's a very famous biography on him. I would encourage everybody to read. He was probably on the right side of most things. So that's a good, good book. I like Alice in Wonderland and The Little Prince. So those are two, those are two books in a completely different vein, but I think it shows the eclectic nature that we have.
0: Uh, Alice in Wonderland is I think one book that you, ta- you take away something new every time you read of course exactly. most great books are like that but uh, children's books especially And somebody else I think the first podcast I did with my friend Manisha she said this you know you spoke on Mahabharata and she said even her recommendation was you know our mythology and she said you know I started reading to my children and I realized oh my god there's so much in this that I never realized and now I'm really taking life lessons from this. Like you said, you also took a life lesson um, from that. Uh, that will be a segue to my next question, but not this one, which is, uh, and I think you have given the, these tips in and through the conversation, but if you have to collate all your tips, three tips for law students uh, or young lawyers.
1: So I would say be flexible while you are exploring your areas of interest. That should change. It should be changing. Uh, balance your academic and non-academic activities. You know, in law school, students focus on one over the other, whereas you need to do both at the appropriate balance. And then just build your skills, you know, your writing skills, your oral skills, your business skills, your human skills. Build those.
0: Lovely answer. Very short, but really powerful answer. Lovely answer. And um uh, Two life lessons. I mean, it's a segue, so I have to ask. Two life lessons that you've learned so far in your
1: life. Uh, The first thing is be positive. You know, our careers are going to go through ups and downs. We're going to have to reassess things. And that's just life. Uh, But try to keep a positive outlook. You know, Indians generally are optimistic, positive people when it comes to some of these things. And keep reminding yourself of that invest in in yourself and try to avoid comparisons you know I think people often are looking I'm here they are there and everybody's path is different and you know enjoy your journey enjoy what you want and just have fun with it
0: good lovely comparison I don't know I'm still I'm struggling with it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: that is human nature just, yeah I know don't I, I don't try
0: to it. remind myself that you know we are all no one's like you and all that rubbish you know how you uh, you say all these affirmations but it's really not helping but yeah hopefully but that's a good one that's yeah. that's useful and finally the best advice that you've ever received
1: Uh, You know, it's a related long advice, but it was figure out your strengths, use them to your advantage and be happy. So I think there's a lot combined in them, but we often forget happiness. You know, we're so, we always are ready to put our happiness on the backbench and why? (laughs) Like we should try to do things that make us happy, that, that encourage us, that motivate us, that uplift us and Never lose sight of that is what I no, would end
0: on. Very true. I think I've, I've got a uh, a better appreciation of that after COVID, to be honest, because COVID forced us to reassess our priorities. Exactly. And and, and beautifully, the entire world was dealing with the same thing at the same time. Correct. So all of Correct. us can relate to each other. Correct. I don't exactly. think it's ever happened in the history of humankind that, you know, all of us were. Dealing with something at the same time, and so now we can all—I think all of us have become kinder and more empathetic, and you know. So, uh, how how do you figure out your strengths? Because uh, I used to have this question, and I, I think I still struggle a little bit. So, for someone young, how do how do they figure out their strength?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, I think it it requires some amount of conscious thinking. But this is, you know, they tell you very often in business to do a SWOT analysis, just see where are you getting positive feedback from, see what are areas that make you happy. You may just want to map it, you know, look at things that that you know, there is potential, you know, there is interest, you know, there is inclination, you know, you're getting external impetuses. People keep telling you, oh, that's, you're a good speaker. You are an interesting speaker, right? Uh, so it does require some amount of evaluation, some amount of conscious thinking, but, map it out on a piece of paper, talk to people around you. Very often, your well-wishers, your family members, they can actually, they can, and this is cultural. You know, in India, we don't like to emphasize it's seen as being egoistic. But people who are around you can actually sometimes help you help you figure out some of these things. Do it, because I think it is good to figure them out and then build on them, because that's where your natural inclination and strengths are.
0: Thanks, Kabir. Very good answer. All your answers are very good, but that's hardly surprising because you do, you have a lot to share and and you've been so generous with your time and uh, with your ideas and a lot of them actually, like I told you, I always take up something. um, You know, sometimes I feel like these conversations are for me, like something I'm struggling (laughs) with and then you tell me something like, Oh, yeah, maybe this is why I spoke to you today, you know, so today, (laughs) when you spoke about comparison, or, uh, and a few things about the practice, I really felt like you're speaking to me and not to a wider audience. And I hope everybody else feels like that at various points of the conversation. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time.
1: It's a pleasure. I mean, for the comparisons, that is human nature. Yeah, we judge ourselves yeah. by looking at others, and there's nothing more debilitating than that because mm-hmm. we don't know, we don't know where other people are coming from, what their paths are, who is influencing them. We just can't do that. Our lives are too different. That's
0: true. That's yeah.
1: true. And we just we need keep to remi- keep reminding. We, yeah. Yes,
0: I think so. Yeah. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, yeah.